Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Tech Emergence Podcast, uh, where in this particular episode that you're about to hear, we recorded this with Nils J. Nilsson, who is uh, retired now, but was a former computer science and uh, professor at Stanford University, actually received his PhD from Stanford in electrical engineering back in 1958. He joins us at the age of 82, out uh, in, in retirement right now at his home in Oregon. He is the author of the 2009 book called The Quest for Artificial Intelligence. And in this particular episode, he's going to take us through a journey as to sort of the origins of AI, its developments, what is commonly known as the AI winter, where research went a little bit quiet and funding went down in the, in the domain of AI, and some of the ethical considerations moving forward, where AI may take us in the future, and what we might want to consider to ensure its proper use. So with no further ado, we'll dive right into the episode with Nils J. Nilsson. Artificial intelligence, the background on it, it can be traced, I think, to a paper that Alan Turing wrote in 1950 called uh, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. Yes. In that paper, Turing <coughs> proposed what was called the Turing test, which was supposed to be a method for finding out whether or not or for determining whether or not machines were intelligent. But then AI really took off in the later 60s, mid to later 60s, with the establishment of laboratories at MIT and at Stanford and at SRI, where lots of work was being done on trying to get machines to do the kinds of things that humans could do, proving theorems, solving yeah. algebra problems, actually algebra word problems, uh, playing games like chess and yep. checkers and other things. Uh, Work was uh, pretty rapid at first, and I think we made a lot of progress, uh, but it stalled probably in the late 70s or early 80s. Uh, progress wasn't as rapid, and that led to what uh, some people, mainly people on the outside, called the AI winter, winter yeah. when funding decreased a bit and uh, progress slowed down a little. Uh, after a while, there was a good deal more work that continued the AI people AI researchers, they weren't disheartened at all uh, by the slowness of results, slowness of progress on results, but they kept at it, and uh, many things happened that uh, made AI take off again. One was the rise of what were called expert systems hmm. that were able to diagnose medical conditions, for example. Uh, one particular program that I was involved in a little bit was a program called Prospector, which was uh, able to discover a hidden mineral deposit up in Mount Tolman, Washington, a mineral deposit of molybdenum. And that was an expert system based on a lot of knowledge about uh, ore deposits. And another thing that happened was that uh, people redoubled their efforts on the development of neural networks. This might be called the second phase of neural networks. There was an earlier phase yep. in the late 50s, early 60s. But the second phase allowed people who were developing neural networks to make changes in the connecting strength in those networks in multiple layers. And uh, this allowed neural network systems to drive automobiles, steer automobiles, very early work in the uh, late 80s early 90s, and so that also propelled work out of the AI winter. Funding began to come back. Cool. It, then, of course, there was the work with uh, much faster computers, so we had 
computers that were a lot faster and had more memory. This allowed, for example, uh, a program to beat the world chess champion, Gary Kasparov, yep. uh, beat the program Deep Blue that IBM developed, uh, beat Gary Kasparov in a routine, in a match, an actual match. And so AI began to get uh, more notice. Uh, more recently, bringing us a little bit more up to the future, uh, with the occurrence of huge databases, which sometimes called big data, yep. and the ability of computers to mine that data and find information and make inferences based on it. This has led to a lot of new work on face recognition, speech recognition, language translation, and so AI really had what might be called a takeoff at about that time. Uh, there's techniques also allowed uh, Stanford University and Carnegie Mellon University to compete in DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency contest for autonomous automobile driving. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stanford won a contest uh, in the uh, 2005, I think it was, driving an automobile completely autonomously off uh, mountain roads in the, the Nevada desert. And they won a uh, rather large prize at the time for that. So now, of course, Google has taken that up. There are uh, talks about sometimes AI being able to uh, drive automobiles, and uh, Google might be uh, trying to work on a, an autonomous car that it would market. As a matter of fact, I think Elon Musk, the person of Tesla fame, said that these autonomous automobiles may be so good that uh, people themselves will be forbidden to drive cars on their own. Yeah. Uh, they're too dangerous. <laughs> it, it, which, so, yeah, funny. But now I think that one of the phrases that people use is that way back in the 70s and 80s, uh, before uh, and around the days of the AI winter, people complained that uh, AI wasn't really good enough. The big problem with AI was that it wasn't happening and uh, it uh, wasn't achieving its promises. Now, uh, sometimes people are saying, well, now the problem with AI is it is achieving its promises. It's too good. And perhaps we have to worry a bit about it, as people like uh, Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk and others have done. Have, yes. Um, before we get into their concerns about the future, Nils, I very much appreciate the, the brief historical rundown of AI as a field. You'd mentioned um, in, the, in the maybe late 50s, 60s, all the way, maybe all the way through the early 70s or what have you there, that um, there was some rapid progress in AI's earlier development. Um, you know, some of us are familiar now with what, you know, AI can do, for lack of better terms. You know, play chess very well, uh, you know, recommend great books on Amazon, um, you know, various, you know, robot soccer tournaments or something like that. But um, in the earlier days, I imagine, you know, myself included, I'm certainly not all that schooled on what developments and leaps and bounds AI made in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. What were some of those earlier sort of rapid uh, progress periods, and what did they yield for us? Well, let me just mention one in particular. A uh, PhD student at Stanford named Ed Shortliffe uh, worked on a program that he called mycin, the suffix for some of the drugs that fight bacteria, like oral myosin and so forth. Yep. The program mycin was able 
using knowledge that uh, Charlotte gleaned from physicians and diagnosticians, it was able to diagnose certain kinds of bacterial infections. So you would sit down at, in those days, a terminal. Uh, we didn't have personal computers. And the system would ask you questions, and you would type in answers about uh, tests that were being made on the blood of someone who had uh, some kind of disease. And the program would then attempt to diagnose not only what the disease was based on these tests and answers, but to prescribe therapy for it, what kind of antibiotic, if any, to give. So that was one example. And when was that? What was the years that that, that was being developed, Nils? Well, I might have to refer to notes to get the yeah, exact yeah. <laughs> the exact one on that. Uh, uh, it all after after being in this field for sixty years. It so, blurs a little bit, I can imagine. Yes, <laughs> the outlines blur a little bit, but I'd say that was in the mid seventies. Okay, like got it. Um, and, and some of the earlier, I mean, in, in the 50s and 60s, so the, I actually was unaware that there was anything close to diagnostic, you know, what, what you'd refer to as maybe expert systems or what have you, uh, in, in the 70s, uh, or as early as the 70s. In the 50s and 60s, what were you working on then? What, was there a checkers playing, uh, you know, artificial there, intelligence there or something? trying to uh, write checker playing programs. Uh, there was a guy named Arthur Samuel who had been an executive at uh, IBM, and he developed a rather a championship checker playing program that was able to beat some world champions at the time. It uh, was based not only on looking ahead in the tree of possibilities of moves by you and your opponent, but also was able to speed up that look ahead, take more advantage of it by various learning techniques uh, that Samuel had developed. There are also some rudimentary chess programs, although they didn't do very well. They uh, were able to play um, maybe C-level chess, yeah. something like that. There's um, work that I was involved in on robots. There was a robot we developed at Stanford Research Institute called Shaky the Robot. It uh, had a television camera and a rangefinder, bump detectors, and it could roll around its environment, which we created for it. Uh, in a large area at SRI, it could be given, it could uh, look at its environment and determine the position of objects, determine where it was in relation to various walls and room corners, and uh, it could be given various tasks, like push uh, this particular object from one room to another. It could then make a plan based on a program we developed called STRIPS, S-T-R-I-P-S. We could then make a plan of actions to achieve such a goal. And it had some actions that were built in. It could monitor the results of those actions, and then it could execute them. If there was a slip-up in some way, for example, the thing that it was pushing slipped off its push bar, it could reorient itself and get back on track. So it was uh, quite a feat for the time, considering that in the 1960s when we were developing uh, this program, computers were quite limited. Uh, the computer we used oh, yeah. uh, toward the end was a digital equipment corporation computer that uh, was quite large by today's standards in terms of size. Yeah, this is 50 years ago, program. right? I mean... It would take up a whole room. Oh, goodness. But it wasn't nearly as, uh, as powerful 
as things you might have on a watch today. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that was, again, 50 years uh, ago, a robot to be able to push around objects and things along those lines. Those, those seem like sort of undeniably novel inventions and developments in the AI field. In terms of, you know, nowadays, at least to some degree, we have an understanding of what value AI brings to uh, society and, and to, you know, the, the business domain and industry in some way, shape, or form. You know, I was, I was on Amazon, you know, this morning looking up your books and seeing recommendations from previous purchases that I've made and, you know, literature and philosophy and, and emerging technology and the way that they're sort of presenting those to me, I, I am imagining is not random. Um, in the 50s and 60s, was AI peeking its head into, you know, serving a purpose in, in larger industry and in crunching numbers in some way and in performing some other feat other than sort of novel feats such as chess playing or, um, or you know, pushing around objects in a, in a laboratory? Well, you know, I think that this brings up the point of what you might call demand pull versus technology push orientations. Ah. And by demand pull, I mean, well, there are problems out there, and they need to be solved, and can AI uh, solve any of them for business or medicine or anything else? I suppose the Meissen program was had a little bit of uh, the emphasis of demand pull. Oh, certainly, yeah. Although... Most of us at the time, I think, were more technology push uh, people. Uh, we had this new technologies, these new techniques of AI, and we wanted to see how far we could we could push them. Yeah. How much more powerful we could make them. Uh, various of us had different orientations about whether we wanted to be quote applied or whether we wanted to do quote basic research. Yep. And I can't speak for everybody, but I was more on the basic side thinking, well, these are all very interesting problems. Uh, who knows when, if ever, uh, the techniques we're developing now will really be used by anybody. But we were fascinated by the techniques themselves. And, uh, got it. So just moving the field forward. Wanted to push them. Yep, got it. Okay, and that's an interesting distinction. I, I, I believe I've heard the distinction before, but maybe was unaware of, of, its, of its application or its use, but I, I understand where you're going with now. Um, Clearly today, AI's made some, um, you know, some uh, inroads into industry and things along those lines. Probably standing on the shoulders of a lot of the exploratory, quote unquote, basic uh, research that that might have just been sort of pushing boundaries and expanding on capacities and things along those lines that didn't immediately translate into some industrial purpose, but now today are, are maybe the basis of of some. Uh, you know, applications for, you know, the companies that we know, the larger companies that we might recognize as, as utilizing uh, artificial intelligence in some way, shape, or form. Which takes us a little bit to my final topic, Nils, which is the, the future of artificial intelligence, and more recently, uh, the, some of the concerns around AI's uh, potential, uh, you know, detrimental uh, impact in the future, assuming it gets, quote-unquote, out of hand. So we've had our Elon Musk and uh, Bill Gates and, and Hawking uh, make statements of varying degrees about their concern of AI potentially running rampant or being developed in a way where it might, you know, uh, the, the Terminator movies come to mind, but that's not exactly how it would happen. But but uh, essentially get, get out of hand to the point where um, 
it, it becomes dangerous. It, it maybe has goals that are different than human goals and needs to get rid of us, or people could leverage it as weaponry or, or for autonomous, uh, you know, destructive robots or something along those lines. Um, in terms of what you've heard of Elon's and of Gates's uh, concerns for AI, what are your thoughts of those? I mean, are they legitimate concerns in any kind of time frame, never mind a near uh, a near field time frame, uh, what, what's the perspective from you as somebody who's been involved in this sphere, field for, you know, 60 years? Well, I think the concerns theoretically are uh, legitimate, and uh, I don't think there's anything to worry about on the point that those people are talking about, that is AI escaping from the laboratory and taking over uh, any time in the very near future. I think, however, artificial intelligence and the techniques that it's has developed already, uh, do pose other kinds of threats. Not that they're going to escape the lab and uh, take us over, but threats, say, to our whole economic system, uh, employment. Uh, a lot of the reason for some of the unemployment problems these days that uh, continue to plague us uh, involve automation. The fact that lots of jobs that people used to do and now can be done by machines. And uh, lots of economists have said, well, we've had automation in the past. People have always tried to scare us that they're going to uh, disrupt the economy and uh, disrupt employment. But new companies start up and new technologies, and they employ more people than those that were displaced. But the problem is that if you have human-level AI, and we're getting somewhat closer to it, those very jobs that will be created are, in fact, jobs that machines can do also. And so it might be that the net result of it all is a decreasing need for human labor. And uh, now, should we regard that as a threat or should we regard that as, well, lots of people have jobs they don't like. Uh, why should we regard eliminating the need for people to work at those jobs as a threat? Uh, they can then spend their time doing more creative things, whatever it is that, yep. that might be. Of course, that would involve uh, reorienting the economy a bit. Certainly. Uh, the production of goods and services will certainly increase, uh, but done by robots and automation. I think the big problem for us is to decide, okay, how do we distribute the, all of those goods and services to people who actually aren't earning a salary? Yeah, so, so you see the bigger immediate concerns in terms of big picture, maybe could be detrimental AI effects, to more be around the economy and unemployment and what we do with people that, frankly, you know, can't get a job because robots can do it just as well or, or you know, uh, an artificial intelligence program of some kind can do it um, just well, as well. Yep, that's, that's one of the threats. Uh, there are two others. Yeah, yeah, go one ahead. Is, uh, one is security, and uh, with AI systems, uh, people will be monitored uh, more than they are used to or would like cameras at airports, uh, street corners, etc. Uh, so there's a concern. The other concern, which I think is uh, quite serious, is the use of autonomous weapons. Yes. That uh, planes can be flown. Uh, right now, the drones, of course, that fly around are not autonomous. They, generally speaking, are guided by somebody in Nevada who pushes the button on whether they're firing a missile. But uh, currently, the technology is certainly capable of having them fly autonomously, make decisions on their own autonomously, and fire missiles autonomously. And uh, so that's something that uh, not only we, as a, quote, defender of democracy uh, and so forth, should uh, pay careful attention to and worry about, 
but other nations will be able to do this also. For sure, and and given those immediate concerns, Nils, uh, you know, what do you think that we need to do, either in America or internationally, as AI, uh, as as research is developed, as applications are sort of rolled out? Um, do we need to focus on some degree of global policy around these technologies? Do you think, you know, there there needs to be more transparency in certain areas? What what would we do in order to ensure? I mean, I think that the continued development of autonomous weapons of, uh, you know, surveillance, better and better surveillance, it would be very difficult to turn back the clock on those technologies. I mean, I think that they're getting better and will continue to. How, even given that, how do we address the concerns, even, even if it's only one of them, um, that you had just brought up? You know, how, how do we take the fact that the technology is getting more and more developed but protect ourselves from, you know, killer robots and, and potentially uh, from some of the detrimental effects of, you know, over-surveillance or something along those lines as well? What are your thoughts there? Well, each of those threats, I think, uh, may have uh, separate, yeah, different sorts of responses. But at least on the autonomous weapons, uh, probably that's a thing for international collaboration to think about. Whether that be the United Nations, which sometimes uh, is not as effective at uh, the kind of control that uh, it can exert as it should be, uh, but other alliances, uh, NATO, uh, discussions with the Chinese. For example, I don't know what you do about the Middle East. Uh, that's a hodgepodge anyway. Sure is. But, <laughs> but um, so, no, those are things which I think we have to be involved in with other nations, and we have to be able to lead the way on things of that sort and set good examples. We're not as good as we should be at setting good examples. Uh, our ability to sell arms to nations in the Mideast, for example, it certainly is not what I would call setting a great example for uh, other countries. But anyway, be that as it may, uh, <laughs> yeah. we need to redouble our efforts there. On other matters, like employment, well, I think uh, we need to think a little bit more about, okay, are we going to have a more income, you know, a, a policy of, of income distribution or reverse income taxes or something, uh, not only is there the problem of getting um, the ability for people to purchase the goods and services made by robots and other automation, but there's the need of, well, what do people do with their time? Uh, yeah. In the past, you know, in the past, well, people didn't have that worry because they, uh, they had to work. But if they don't have to work, uh, what do they do? Uh, can't very well go back to the old breads and circus thing of the Romans. But, uh, well, we could. I mean, most most people do that to some degree uh, or another today with the you know television and McDonald's. But no, but I'm I'm with you. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, we need to think a little bit about that too. And, yeah. Uh, that I think is something that uh, will involve politics in this country, and uh, think tanks uh, will probably come up with various ideas, and uh, the citizenry. I think one. Of important uh, part of it is that the uh, citizenry has to be more well-informed about these threats than it is at the moment. Got it. So proliferating these conversations early, thinking through some of the consequences, and having maybe at least some feet to fall on, uh, you know, when maybe a grander shift away from manual human labor uh, is at hand, and, and, and have, you know, some theories to be able to jump into, or, or some... Uh, models about how that might work out and think through those more thoroughly already? Yep, if you look at my webpage, you'll see I wrote a paper back in the 
in the early 80s, I think, uh, called Artificial Intelligence, Employment, and Income. And I was worried about that part of the problem then. Uh, some people thought I was uh, thinking about it a little prematurely. Uh, but anyway, a lot of that stuff is still with us, is now with us. Well, I, I, I'd like to think maybe, Nils, you were just a little bit ahead of your time in a good way, my good man. And I, I appreciate you uh, being able to take us through a, a little bit of a journey through time in, in the development of AI and some ideas about its future. Uh, as somebody who's been involved in this field for you know over 50 years, it's, it's fantastic to be able to glean your perspective. I appreciate you taking the call out of retirement and being able to share your wisdom with us today here on Tech Emergence, Nils. Thanks so much. Well, it's been fun for me, too, and good luck. Perfect. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>